This morning's reading comes from the Gospel of Luke in chapter 15, uh, verses 8 to 10. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Thanks be to God. Oh, sorry. Word of the Lord. <laughs> there it is. All right. Go ahead and have a seat. Thanks, Chris. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is John. I'm a pastor here. I am not preaching today, but I want to introduce my friend who is uh, Jonathan Mikes. Jonathan and Rocio and their two kids have been serving at a church called La Fuente in uh, Mexico City for the last 10 plus years. Uh, they, they planted the, their church there about the same time that this church planted, so I feel, always feel like we're like sister churches. Uh, and Jonathan came, if you've been around for a while, you know Jonathan came and spoke at a retreat at New City about six years ago when we were up at Covenant Pines. Uh, I know Jonathan because we were really close friends in seminary, really quick story, sorry. Uh, we were at Starbucks yesterday and it reminded me when we were in seminary, we were... Um, uh, we would fast together. We ended up being roommates, and then we would do fast together. And there was one time when we did a week-long fast, but we decided that it was going to be a liquid fast, so we could have any liquid. So we had, like, Gatorade and orange juice, and we would drink that. But we also would study at Starbucks. And some way in, in the middle of that fast, we decided that um, frappuccinos were technically liquids. And so... <laughs> Lo and behold, during this fast, we, we made frequent trips to study and drink Vente Frappuccinos at Starbucks, which we later came to dis discover with, you know, the whipped cream and shards of chocolate on top were over a thousand calories. So we weren't really sure how much fast we were doing that week. Um, but John and I, we were really close friends, and Mary, too, we were in seminary. We were all uh, good friends uh, in seminary. It's been great to stay in touch with him and really fun to have you come and uh, preach the retreat and now preach on Sunday morning. So come on out. Let's welcome Jonathan. As uh, I look back at seminary, you know, it can be a really heady time where you're studying a lot and you know, immersing yourselves in the Bible and theology. And one of the things I really appreciated of, of uh, my friendship with John is one of the things that I'm most thankful for during our seminary time is not only was it just a head thing where you're studying and kind of doing, you know, nerding out for a few years, it was also really, uh, John was somebody who really pushed me to remember it's a heart thing too. And I'm very thankful for John with that and for, for Mary too. So anyway, it's fun to be here um, after having been here uh, a number of years ago to be back. Um, I want to look at the uh, Luke chapter 15, and you know, uh, Rocio and I have been in Mexico City. We've been there for the last basically um, 12 years on the ground, and during that time, we've been fortunate enough to be able to to, to start a church to start an international school, and neither of those places are perfect. We've made plenty of mistakes in the process, but one of the things that 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 that, that biblical text does for me is, is it's from Luke chapter 15, and for me it's one of the most important passages of, of Scripture, the whole chapter, because it reminds me why we're even doing what we're doing. Um, it reminds me why we're called across cultures to be involved in missions. Um, some looking for the lost. So let's look, let's uh, let's dig into the parable of the lost coin. I want to start us off with with a word of prayer. Father, thank you, thank you for this time that you give us to study your word. And I pray that you would just speak to us. 
that you would reveal to us what you want us to learn today and what you want us to take home. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you have lost something? We've all lost something. How many of you lost something recently? I remember, I think, so we're in transition, Rocio and I, we've been in Mexico City these 12 years, and we felt a call from the Lord to go to, um, to relocate. We'll be in Charlotte, North Carolina, starting in June, and we're going to be involved in missions um, through being, uh, supervising different ministries around the globe. We're really excited about it, but it's going to be a change for us. And so there's a lot of things kind of flying around in my mind. And I see myself just forgetting a lot of things because I think I'm distracted. I'm focused on, you know, the move and everything that's next. So I just find myself losing a lot of things these days. Um, and you know, we've been in Mexico city. I lost my winter coat for like two weeks. And we live, we're living in Iowa right now. And I just think, where is that? I spent two weeks trying to find where it was, calling my daughter's school, calling where we play basketball. I finally found it. I think of my favorite sweatshirt. I lost that. And I was looking around, where is it? And again, lo and behold, you know where it was? It was in the closet. The biggest thing that I'm most embarrassed about, like we had this amazing family that, that uh, supports us in ministry and has supported us as we've served in Mexico City over these years. Um, and we had a chance to stay with them uh, about a month ago. And they were amazing. We were going to be in, in Charlotte to look at uh, the, the ministry possibility that we had there. And they said, yeah, come to our home. You've got the whole downstairs for yourselves. Like, just take that. And, and uh, my friend Russell said, yeah, you can, and, and you can have the keys to my car, like take my car the entire weekend over there. I'm just like, wow, what generosity. These guys are amazing. And then we got there and, uh, and they gave me the, you know, the, what do you call it? The, the garage door opener to the, my Spanish sometimes interferes with my English. I'm sorry. Uh, the, and and uh, so, okay, you can use this garage door opener to get in and out of the garage. Okay. We didn't end up using the garage the whole weekend that we were there, but it, they gave it to us. And we got on the plane, flew back to Des Moines, Iowa. And my friend Russell sends me a text message. He's like, Jonathan, where is the garage door opener? Um, I don't know. <laughs> um, and, so, and so I was thinking to myself, where was it? Oh, yeah, like I don't even remember using it. I must have dropped it off in the bathroom. And, and, uh, and, and just got distracted, and then I just didn't pick it up. So I said, okay, check it out in the bathroom. I'm sure it's there. It's not there. Text me, I didn't find it, okay? Um, look in the, on the bedside table. Maybe it's in the bedside table or in the kitchen. I went through all these places, and I couldn't find it in my mind anywhere. Finally, I talked to Daniel, my son. I'm like, Daniel, do you remember where the, you know, the garage door opener is for Russell's garage? I think... It's in the car, in the, the Jeep that they uh, loaned us. It must be in the middle, middle console. I'm like, I don't really remember that at all, Daniel. I think you're making that up. But I'm at least going to tell him, okay, check the, check the console. Couldn't find it there. And it was one of those things that was profoundly uncomfortable because we loved these guys. They'd been so generous to us for the entire weekend, and we just couldn't find this stupid garage door opener. And so then, um, you know, finally, I, I, I just felt horrible. I'm like, okay, let's, Rocio, where could it be? And so it was literally, I think, later on that day where Rocio says, you know, in my mind's eye, we went to visit somebody else during the middle of that trip, the first night of that trip, and I see that garage door opener. I kind of remember seeing something that looked like a garage door opener on the lawn <laughs> of this house. And I just assumed it was maybe like part of their sprinkler system or something like that, but like, okay. 
Well, maybe if it was in my jacket pocket, maybe it dropped into the on the ground as we were bringing our bags in. Maybe that's where it is. Hop on, you know, I text my other friend at another house. Hey, Tom, this is a wild chance. Do you think maybe you could check in your front lawn and maybe there's a garage door opener in that lawn? And we, we got to the point, like, I, you know, sometimes I feel like I don't want to bother God by praying about certain things because they're not a big deal. But I'm like, Lord, please help us to find this. I, wanna, I don't want to be a burden to my friend. And guess what? I get a text message the next morning and with a big smiley face, my friend Tom, Jonathan, guess what? Guess what I found on my front lawn? Is this it? Took a picture of it, sent it to Russell. He said, yes, that's it. I was happy the entire rest of the day. We found that garage door opener, and I don't feel like such a tool now, or maybe a little bit, because we actually were able to get that garage door opener back. When you think about the parable of the lost coin, it just kind of reminds us how we can celebrate those little things that we can find, that we maybe spend a lot of time looking for, those simple things, but it happens to us all. How do we feel when we find them? Woohoo! I got it. In this case of the woman with, uh, with, the, uh, with the, the parable of the lost coin, the scripture says, Suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let's go to the next slide. As, you know, I love the visual of the woman with, you know, looking through her house. And, and there's a couple things. Like, one, why would, she, why would she be searching? Apparently the coin, there's different interpretations of, you know, why the coin was significant, why the coin was special. Some would say that, um, you know, maybe it was part of her savings and, you know, she was a relatively um, humble woman who had very little life savings and that was all of her life savings. Other will say that that was part of her dowry. That's the only thing that was actually hers in her marriage. Either way, they say that she was obviously a woman who didn't have much. She had 10 coins. Each of those coins, in, in, they were like the Greek drachma, which basically was the, equi the equivalent of one day's wages. So she had a savings account of 10 days of wages, and she lost one of those 10. What does it look like today? I mean, I think if you, know, if you were to do the math, you know, the minimum wage here in Minnesota, according to Google, is $10 an hour. You have $800 in the bank. That's 80 bucks that you lost. If you look at the average, the median salary in the United States, I think about $60,000 a year. It'd be $2,500 in your bank, and maybe you lost $250. So one-tenth, but, but this woman's situation was much more desperate, probably, than, than any of ours, because she wasn't somebody who could necessarily work or who would have been hired to work. That was everything she had. So she was searching because it was extremely significant to her to find it, whether it was significant financially or whether it was significant because it had an emotional connection to her, because it was her special dowry that she brought to the marriage. We don't know. Why was there a lamp as she's looking in her house? According to the ancient um, the, the times of Jesus, most houses didn't even have windows. 
Most houses didn't even have windows. Maybe they had one window. Maybe they had a couple windows, but they were really, really small. So even in the middle of the day, people would use their, their lamps to be able to find anything. And so here's this woman looking all the way around her house, her little house, with a lamp, probably in the middle of the day, to be able to find that coin. Why would she sweep? Why would that be significant that she'd pull out a broom to get it? And one of the interesting things about um, the history of this passage is basically they had a, a cobblestone floor in those ancient houses. And so they would say that today that, it, that uh, archaeologists will go to these kind of houses today and they will look at the stone floor and they will pull out the shards of like clay that would be, that would be stuck in the cobblestone and they will use, archaeologists will use what is stuck in between the cobblestone as a way to determine, you know, how old the home was. And so the point with that is saying things would normally get stuck in that cobblestone and people couldn't find them because that was just the nature of the floor. Cobblestone is beautiful, but things get stuck in there. And so the idea was because there were so many holes and that looks like a, you know, obviously it's a doctored, you know, painting, if it were real, you'd, I mean, a more accurate reflection, it would have those stone, the cobblestone floor, but the woman would be sweeping it, and as she swept it, she would probably hear the coin, and that's how she knows she'd get it. Regardless, this woman's looking and looking and looking and trying to find the coin. Verse 9 says, and when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. Can you imagine that being so significant that she would jump up with joy and that she would go talk to all of her friends? When I found the garage door opener, first thing I did was, Rocio, guess what? This is something infinitely more important to her. <clears throat> she found her lost coin. And she was going to tell people. It's kind of a re reflection of the community culture. In the same way, Jesus says in verse 10, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. In the same way, I tell you, Jesus says, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let's go to the next one. So there's something bigger going on here. The Luke chapter 15 has three different parables. And if you look at them, you can see a pattern. The three parables, you have one parable, which is the parable of the lost sheep. The other parable is the parable of the lost coin. And the final parable in this section is the one of the lost son, the prodigal son. And the first one, you've got one of a hundred sheep that was missing. Then the second one, you've got one of 10 coins that were missing. And the second one, I mean, the third one was one of, ton, ten, one of two sons who were lost. And so this common thing of something was lost and needed to be found. What is this responding to? It's responding to a criticism that was leveled against Jesus. And this is what it was, Luke 15, one and two. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. 
People are complaining about Jesus. They're complaining about the kind of people that he held court with, had, had as friends. And so Jesus, responding to this criticism, then breaks it down and talks about these three parables. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. N.T. Wright, who's a famous New Testament scholar, says the following, all three stories are a way of saying, this is why we're celebrating. Wouldn't you have a party if it was you? How could you miss that? How could we not have a party if we're finding what was lost? It's interesting, this scholar also says, you know, if you look at the, the Lord's Prayer, the simple Lord's Prayer that tradition has taught us and that we find in Scripture, the Lord's Prayer is, let it be done on earth as it is where? So if there's a party in heaven, Jesus is saying, there needs to be a party on earth when these lost people are found. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's move on to the next slide. So we're going to look at a few takeaways. The first, God's kingdom is for sinners. I want to look, I want to ask you guys all to do something uncomfortable. Maybe it'll be pretty comfortable. Turn to the person next to you and say, you're a sinner. <laughs> Does that feel good? <clears throat> God's kingdom is for sinners. That was why Jesus brought up the whole story. That's why Jesus taught the three different parables. The, God's kingdom is for sinners. And if you're really thinking about um, the focus of, the, of this series that... that um, that John is, is bringing up these Sundays. Mysteries of the kingdom. What's the mystery in this passage? I think the mystery is who is the kingdom for? And what God is revealing through this text, what Jesus is revealing through these stories, is saying the kingdom is for sinners. Who are you excited to see in heaven? I want to go through this, maybe drill with you. Think of, maybe close your eyes for a moment. Who are you excited to see in heaven? Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a hero of the faith. Who are you excited to see in heaven? All right, open your eyes now. Let's just be really honest with each other. If you had to put down on a list, who would you not like to see in heaven? Of course, as Christians, we should never think this, right? But realistically, there might be certain people that we'd rather not see there. Maybe it's individuals that have wronged us. Or maybe it's a group of people that make us feel uncomfortable. Who do we not want to see in heaven? That was the problem that the Pharisees had with what Jesus was doing. We don't want those corrupt tax collectors. I was reading through the Gospel of Luke this week. One of the things that was really interesting as I was thinking about it, have you, ever have you ever paid attention to the fact of how we tend to focus and fixate on maybe one, uh, one particular sin as like a culture <clears throat> or as a group of people or even as a particular church, we kind of lean on one thing or another? You're looking through the Gospels, you look at in Jesus' time, the one that they seem to be really fixated on was the Sabbath, right? It comes up again and again and again. And Jesus is almost poking at him because the Sabbath is good. It's great to rest. 
but that was the one that all the Pharisees were fixating on. What's the one that you maybe fixate on and like to point out in other people? What's the one that I like to fixate on and kind of bring up frequently? I think of even the political conversations, the uncomfortable political conversations I think of, for example, what are two typical ones that can be brought up even the political dialogue today? One is greed and the other can be sexual immorality. When they talk about the sinners in the Bible, you know which ones they typically signal? They're signaling the, uh, the tax collectors, the greedy. And then they bring up frequently the prostitutes, sexual immorality. Some things don't change, right? God's kingdom is for sinners. It's for those people that we may not want to see in heaven. But the other thing, if you look at a word study of what sinners means or how it's brought up in the New Testament, I want to signal two pretty famous people. First of all, Simon Peter, earlier on in the, in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is walking by Peter. And Peter's been fishing all night long. And he hasn't caught anything. And Jesus says, go over there and fish. Go to the other side of the lake and throw your nets out there. And he gets this miraculous catch. And what's the th first thing Peter says? It says, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Paul says later on, here's a trustworthy saying that, de that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Who's a sinner today? A lot of times, sinner is those people over there and they are. And then the other one is, who's a sinner? Me. Second point. God seeks to find lost people. Just as the woman sought to find the coin, Jesus seeks to find lost people. If maybe, I don't know where you're at today. Maybe you're struggling. Maybe there's something that you feel guilty about. It's just a reminder. God loves to seek after lost people. If you're feeling like you've messed up today, God is after you in a good way. On the opposite side, God is after the lost people that we don't want to reach sometimes. And if, God, if lost people matter to God, they need to matter to us. I don't think... We really have the option in this particular passage to say, ah, they don't really matter. You know, it's not really that big a deal. God doesn't really care that much about reaching people who don't know him or who are lost. Rather, it requires an intentional effort, and God gives an intentional effort to reach those people. All right, so when we're in Mexico, in our church, we get pretty active and, and people move around a lot. I want to ask all of you to stand up right now. This is just a very simple drill. Get the, get the uh, what do you call it, the daylight savings time blood flowing. What does repentance mean? Does it mean feel bad? It means turn around. Turn around, please. Turn around. Turn around again. All right. Have a seat.
Repentance, as, we, as many of us know, doesn't mean just feel bad. It means turn around. It's an invitation not to feel guilty, but an invitation for a new beginning. How do we invite people to turn around? Because if we're to emulate how God does it, if lost people matter to God, they should matter to us. If we're going to emulate how God does it, we should kind of have an idea how to do it. I want to just share two bad examples from my own personal life. Um, when we were first starting our church in Mexico City, Rocio and I would spend a ton of time with a lot of people who were really good friends, and we had a great time hanging out with them. And they became just amazing friends of ours. And, and we wanted just to connect with them. And so we would spend a lot of time, we'd go to parties, we'd, we'd, uh, we'd just spend time with these friends. And, and I was very cautious in sharing my faith in Christ with them, because I didn't want to, you know, I wanted to connect with them more than I wanted to cause any kind of conflict. And I'll never forget, finally, we had a chance to share our faith in Christ with one of these friends in particular. And you know what he said to me? He's like, Jonathan... I knew there was something different about you. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, wow, I'm really leaving an impact here. (laughs) He's like, I thought, but what I really thought was, it was yoga. That you were going to tell me (laughs) that your life was different because you practiced yoga. And I felt God speak to me and just say, wow, if you don't say anything, People can kind of interpret whatever they want to interpret. Sometimes we can be too shy as we approach people and want to share the faith. Another example, I think of to my seminary years, our seminary years, and, and I remember during those seminary years, my sister made a comment. It was a joke. It was in the context of a joke, but my sister basically made the comment of saying, you know what, Jonathan, you're always correcting people's theology. That was, another seri- that was another time in my life where my error was on the opposite side, where instead of connecting, I was more about correcting people. What's your tendency as you talk to people who may or may not know the faith? Are you a connector or are you a contraster? Each of us probably have a natural wiring, <clears throat> and it doesn't really matter which one you tend to be. But I think it's God's invitation to go, be careful that we don't go into either of those ditches. I want to end with a bit of a challenge. Go on the next slide, please. N.T. Wright, New Testament scholar that I cited earlier, says this. The real challenge for these parables for, day, for today's church is what would we have to do in the visible public world if we were to make people ask the questions to which stories like these are the answer? It's kind of a wordy way of saying, let's, wouldn't it be fun to provoke that kind of response from people? They just kind of had to lift up their glasses, take a second look. What are these guys doing? What are they all about anyway? What would we have to do to make the, in the visible public world to make people give us as followers of Jesus a second look? 
So I want to ask you, how are you involved in the game? Are you in the game today? What are you doing? Or what has God put in your heart to do to reach out to people who are near you or who are perhaps far from you? Through whom you can be used, for whom you can be used by God to reach them. And I think about two things. I think globally and I think of locally. Rocio and I have been involved in international missions, been in Mexico City for a chunk of time. We'll be involved in global missions now, having a chance to travel around the world and see different projects. Our call has been global. Maybe yours is too, or maybe it's something super local. Maybe it's the person across the street. What's God inviting you to do? Who's the lost person he's inviting you to find? Maybe you're that lost person who just needs to respond. Or maybe you're the person that God wants to use to to reach that lost person. I'm going to go to the last slide. This stuff isn't necessarily new. Maybe a lot of us kind of know it. But what's hard is to take the risk and to actually take that step of faith to share our faith, to talk about Jesus to other people. I'll come out and confess, I am, I'm afraid a lot of times. I fear failure. You know, I think of, I can be very risk averse. Rocio says, says to me sometimes, you know what? I think you just like to take risks. Like, actually, I, don't, I think I don't like to take risks. But there's something about me that because I don't like to take them, kind of dares myself to do it. When I first thought about going on a summer missions trip, I'll never forget, it was a weird thing. I was gonna go to a summer in Mexico City. And so um, I decided that I had an opportunity to to be part of a two month long mission. I was gonna live with a Mexican family. I was gonna live in a local church. I mean, um, work in a local church. It was a totally immersive experience. I'd had four years of Spanish in high school. And so I kind of knew a little bit of Spanish, obviously, and I kind of knew a little bit of the culture, but I didn't really know a lot of it. Never really been out of the country by myself. Yet I kind of felt this prodding to take a risk. And so I signed up for a summer mission trip. It was going to be two months. And I'll never forget the very night before I was set to hop on that airplane, I was taking out my contacts and I looked at myself in the mirror and I said, Jonathan, what are you doing? And in one moment, I just thought to myself, I can't believe I'm doing this. Why? Should I really go? And almost simultaneous to that, I felt God speak to me and say, you know what? That's what faith is all about taking that risk, not knowing what to expect, but taking the plunge anyway and trusting God to catch you. I went, spent the most amazing summer I'd ever spent in my life, 
And through that one summer, that's basically how God called me to ministry and to missions, through taking that one leap. I think about um, fall, uh, spring of 2008, when Rocio and I were ready to start. We, wanted to, we dreamed about starting our church in Mexico City. And we had a retreat where we asked all of our friends to join us, and we were doing the Alpha class, the Alpha course. And it's an introduction to the Christian faith. And at the end of, the, at the end of that retreat was the idea there would be an invitation to ask people uh, invite people to follow Jesus. And I stood up there, it was basically, you know, my first experience as, you know, kind of a pastor in ministry. I stood up and gave the invitation, really low-key invitation, yet at the same time a clear invitation for people to come forward. And I watched, and there was a group of 10 people that day, and good friends of ours, and I invited people to come forward to receive prayer to, to give their life to Christ. And I sat there for hours, and no one responded. It wasn't hours, but it felt like hours. <laughs> it was probably just a couple minutes. But one by one, people started to come forward as we took the risk that weekend to invite our friends to follow Jesus. And one by one, people gave their lives to Jesus. And as a result of that weekend, we saw our church be birthed that one weekend in Mexico City. A couple months, a couple years, a uh, number of years later, we had a chance to start an international school. I had no experience in schools. I went to school one time. That was my own experience. And we felt the Lord prodding us to take that jump of faith. And we did, and God is growing that effort. What is the risk that God is calling you to take? as it relates to seeking what is lost. I want to end with that question today and just ask you to chew on that and think on that in prayer and ask God if he, if he would use you to reach those who are lost with the gospel. Let's pray. God, thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for, for the parable of the lost coin and Lord, we pray, we just thank you that you love us so much that you wanted to find us. That you loved us so much as sinners that you sought us out. I pray, Lord, for New City, that you would bless this group of people so that many people in this area and beyond could be found by you using them in Jesus' name. Amen.